We are continuing with a series on truth and witness and some of the challenges to that and civility in a hostile world. Uh, yesterday we talked about why we believe that Jesus is the truth and, uh, and some of the implications of, of this thing that Jesus is God and Jesus is God's word to a dying world. Uh, today I want to talk primarily about civility in a hostile world. Um, we have a very countercultural message to give. Um, the belief in the unique, uniqueness of Christ, whereby we use every effort to persuade people to accept the truth. This is something that is difficult in today's world. It's an age that has been ruined by intercommunal hostility, prejudice, racial profiling. Uh, arrogance, fundamentalist extremes. And peace-loving people today are talking about inclusion, tolerance, compromise, civility. And many people associate evangelism with what is bad and not with these features that we consider to be good. Then, of course, we add to that the unfortunate history that many of us are inheritors of. People were once forced to bow down to a power they don't like. And they have experienced freedom. And anything that reminds them of the power they were under is a problem to them. And sadly, today, in this part of the world, orthodoxy, is one of those powers. And uh, uh, today's so-called sexual and reproductive freedom and the granting of rights to people to express themselves in the way they want, they see themselves liberated from the shackles of orthodoxy. And Christianity, of course, is associated with this orthodoxy. It could be political power or colonial power in Sri Lanka, our people resent the fact that we were once ruled by first the Portuguese, then the Dutch, and then the British. Some of us have Portuguese names, and uh, some of our people are giving up those Portuguese names to go back to our own names. Uh, my wife belonged to a family that had a Sri Lankan name, and one of the things she said is she won't get married to a person with a Portuguese name. <laughs> well, Providence decreed otherwise. <laughs> uh, these people were supposedly Christian, and the colonial era was also the missionary era. And then, of course, things like slavery and apartheid were condoned by people who were Christians, who were evangelical Christians. To be sure, evangelicals in the 18th and 19th centuries were in the forefront of some of these battles against things like racism and, and uh, uh, slavery and apartheid. But they associate some of these things with us. I've heard some say, don't, play, don't blame me for the things that were done before I was born. I never did these things. That comes from an individualistic uh, stance where people separate themselves 
from the sins of their forefathers. Most people think of themselves as joined to their history. Most cultures do that. So, so this is the background in which we are trying to preach this unique gospel. What can we say to it? Firstly, I'd like to say that evangelism doesn't need worldly power to thrive. In Sri Lanka, uh, we were 450 years under foreign rule, and 300 of those years was under Protestant rulers, so supposedly Protestant. After independence, there was a drastic drop in the, in the church. People were embarrassed by their connections with uh, the colonial rule, and the church reduced in numbers and became very liberal theologically because a liberal theological agenda seemed to fit in more with the anti-colonial mentality that was there. And so this was connected to the uh, embarrassment with the colonial connection. Christianity was considered a Western religion. And they said that we, the Westerners, considered themselves superior to the Easterners. Now, in the past 25 years, we've had a terrible war and lot of persecution. We lost our privileges that we had under colonial rule. But the church has grown. And the church has been continuing to grow. Uh, and you, you, you look at the places where the church has grown rapidly. It's been amidst hardship and persecution. China, Nepal, Iran, and a little earlier, Korea, at the start of the growth of the church in Korea, there was so much hardship that they went. The power of Christ is demonstrated clearly when Christians have no earthly power. And it is especially relevant with the resentment that people feel over the power that Christians have had in history. Our weaknesses may be a door opening exercise for the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul says, to the weak I became weak. That's something I don't think anyone likes. No one likes to operate from weakness. But it may produce a new kind of power dynamic. So don't be discouraged over the loss of power of Christians. It could be an opportunity for the gospel. So the gospel has grown uh, amidst hardship. The next slide, please. Uh, and then our whole calling is a calling to servanthood. Whether we have earthly power or not, our, serv our stance is always a stance of servanthood. Uh, and the reading, reading that we read, uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. We proclaim, uh, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Jesus was a servant Lord and we proclaim Jesus as Lord out of a servant lifestyle. You know, during the time of the Jews, uh, uh, of Jesus, uh, the Jews found it very difficult to accept that a servant could be the Lord that they are to follow. Today we have the exact opposite problem. 
people are saying, you people are talking about, about this person being the Lord. That type of attitude doesn't go with servanthood. It's just the opposite. The two have reversed. But we must prove them wrong. And how can we do that? By servanthood. By being servants to our people. And history shows that this is one of the ways that the world was won. I think many of you may know about Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, where there's a chapter on plagues and epidemics. And how the Christians behaved during the plagues and epidemics was one of the things that oriented people's minds towards the gospel and opened the door for the gospel to grow. At the heart of servanthood, however, is the fact that Jesus is Lord. That's why Paul said, we proclaim Jesus as Lord, and then he said, and ourselves as your servants. That's a fact. Jesus is Lord. And that's what gives us confidence. There is no need for us, for example, to betray our beliefs in our battle for the faith. Fundamentalism is essentially an expression of insecurity. To fight for the truth, people need to deny some of the truths enshrined in this thing they call the truth. They have to deny the truth in order to fight for the truth. Not so with Christians. Even though our people, uh, even though people may be powerful and hostile to us, we are at peace because Jesus is Lord. We believe in the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of scripture. And so we don't need to use unworthy practices to protect our faith. A government official was once talking to a person he had captured and imprisoned because of preaching the gospel. And this person said, what can your God do for you now? He responded, he can give me the strength to forgive you. That's the power of the gospel. Uh, in 2004, we had a very, very popular uh, Buddhist apologist, uh, a monk, who spoke a lot against Christianity. Uh, he died. And um, the people said he died, he was poisoned by the Christians. And so there was a wave of attacks on the Christians. Uh, I was there during the time of the funeral, but I left soon after that. And uh, for, left the country soon after that. And um, shortly after the funeral, uh, there was a poster that came outside our home that said, foreign-funded, non-government organizations who are converting people for money must be sent out of this country. It was an attack on us, and it was on our wall. And uh, then we heard that they were, the people had, got roused up and they were planning to uh, de uh, damage our, our vehicle. So we sent that to an uncle's place. And, um, and, and I found out who had been against this, who had been planning this attack on us. Uh, he was the representative in our neighborhood of a radical communist group that had tried to overthrow our government some years ago and now had entered the mainstream and um, he was the leader of that group. And I thought, uh, I must somehow try and make friends with this person. 
So I, I normally go for a walk in my neighborhood and stop and talk to the people whenever I can. Uh, and um, whenever I passed him, I smiled at him. And he always glared at me. But I did, I continued to do this for years, maybe two years, three years. I, whenever I passed him, I smiled at him. And he never smiled back. Then, you know, uh, they live in a, a group of very poor houses. Uh, it's a garden-like thing, a lot of houses in, those, in that place where they live. And the, the, the people in that community uh, had a talent show for their children. And they asked me to be the chief guest at the talent show. So then they asked me to give a speech. And this man was there. And I was talking about how our community can rise and about people who had come from this community and made a name for themselves and, and uh, you know, typical motivational message I was giving. And uh, suddenly, I saw him clapping. <laughs> and I knew that something had happened. And the next time I saw him, I stopped. I was driving the car. I stopped and I talked to him. And he was very friendly. A few days later, a few months later, his mother, his father died. And I went for the funeral and I sat next to him. And he was so friendly. And I asked him about his children. And he, he went and called his children and introduced them to me. And, um, and suddenly we became friends. Uh, I was at a funeral a few months ago and he was like the MC at the funeral. And uh, he asked me, oh, Ajit Fernando is here. Please come and give a speech, which is what people do at funerals. They give speeches. So, uh, so I had to give a speech. And today when we meet, we chat, both of us have a common concern for the poor. And so we talk about the community and what we can do and about politics. Um, servanthood and friendship is one of the ways we are going to Take away the animosity that people have towards Christianity. And this makes us committed to civility. We are polite, we are considerate, and we are respectful. You know, if, uh, the Bible shows about people who have thrived when they were in a minority situation, uh, biblical people, that they were always respectful. Look at Daniel, the way he acted. Look at Nehemiah, Abraham. You know, in chapter 23 of, uh, of Genesis, it talks about how Abraham uh, planned Sarah's burial. And you see him acting with extreme humility towards the people there and received a very favorable response. The next chapter, chapter 24, we see how he arranged Isaac's wedding there, there was no compromise. He wanted somebody who followed Yahweh to be the wife of his, uh, of his son. So there was respect, but there was no compromise. And that's what we have to show. We, people have protocols. And we must be very sensitive towards the protocols that people have. Uh, there was a time when our workers were coming under attack from a temple. Uh, people had come to Christ from that temple and, and the workers were being attacked. They were assaulted. And I went to that town 
And the, the people asked me uh, to go and visit the monk uh, who was behind some of these attacks. And so I had them tutor me. How should I speak? What should I call him? What should I do? So I went, I removed my shoes, walked into the temple, sat on the floor. He was a young guy, he was seated on the chair, but that's the culture. Uh, and we were, uh, there was a group of about 20, 20 people who were just attacking us, attacking, attacking, saying all sorts of things. Um, I didn't win the battle by any means. Uh, and I think some of our young people are a little uh, uh, annoyed that I hadn't won the debate. But I didn't go to fight a debate, to have a debate. I went to try and open doors for the gospel. And, um, and I was seated there smiling as they were attacking me. And then the temple cat came and sat next to me. You know, and I, I come from a family that hates cats. It's, it's inherited. My grandmother hated cats. She had a phobia for cats. And, you know, it came down uh, to me. And here was the temple cat beside, seated beside me. And for the sake of the gospel, I stroked the cat. <laughs> <laughs> I think God is calling us to really ask ourselves, how can we be following the protocol of the people? Uh, how can we be, um, you know, culturally sensitive? You know, today in the name of free speech, a lot of culturally insensitive things are being done. Uh, people who don't realize the, the dynamics at work in an honor and shame-oriented culture. For example, cartoons of Muhammad. You know, I can't believe that people would do a thing like that. Because it's so insulting. According to their cultural norms, it represents an arrogant disregard and disrespect for people's sensitivities. You know, in honor and shame-oriented cultures, to break such values is evil. To insult leaders by calling them names, for example, is evil. Just like in these cultures, it is evil to be dishonest and to do things like sexual abuse. So that is to them sin against them. So I think we have to really be careful about this. The next slide, please. We need, however... You know, you can be so sensitive that you don't proclaim the gospel. Uh, it is tough. The gospel brings heartache when families are rent in two by some accepting Christ and others not. It is scandalous in our cultures for a person to give up one's faith or one's religion. Even the Bible recognizes this. In Jeremiah 2 and verse 11 it says, has a nation changed its gods? That's, that's something that people don't do. Even though there are no gods. It, people just don't do that. Um, I have two children and both are at the moment are discipling people who have come from the other faiths in our country. And I worry for them. My son once went to a home and, um, uh, of a boy who was coming to our programs. Uh, he was from the majority faith in our country. And um, the father 
He met the father. We always go and meet the parents when young people come to our clubs. Uh, and uh, went and talking to the father and the father told his wife to bring the family gun. And he brought the gun and he told my son, if my son is converted, I'm going to shoot you with this. And, uh, and what happened is that the son did get converted. <laughs> and uh, fortunately for him, the father went, took a job abroad and he's living abroad at the moment. <laughs> but you know, as a youth worker, I, 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 I often think it's so much less com complicated. Why do we want to go and preach to these non-Christians? So much easier to work with Christians and to give all our time enriching the church and Christians. Is it worth it? Why don't we help them to live harmoniously with their families and their communities? Well, people are lost without Christ. And that's one of the things that we never get out of our minds. Paul said in Romans 9, 1 to 3, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He's talking about the Jews. People need the Lord. You know, in, uh, in Egypt, in May 2017, uh, this year, uh, there was an attack on a bus. I don't know whether you remember that. There was an attack on a bus of people going to a, a monastery and uh, claimed by ISIS. Uh, 29 people, including children, were killed in that bus. And the injured survivors were sent to a hospital and um, a government minister uh, came and visited them, a Muslim minister came to visit them. And there was a woman who, when the minister came to her, said, don't worry about me. I'm worried about you. I'm worried about where you will go after you die. And of course, the minister was taken aback. And the people around apologized suggesting that the woman was overly distraught and, you know, uh, and, and she said, no, 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 I'm in my right mind. I've lost 11 members of my family. I have nothing else to lose, but I am at peace knowing that they are in heaven. What about you? Have you read the Bible, she says. People need the Lord. That's what one of the things, many things that drive us, but this is one of those things. People need the Lord. So let me just say that we need to share the gospel and sometimes ultra-sensitivity can prevent witness. You know, we can be so sensitive to the people's, you know, moods and things like that, that we end up not sharing the good news with them. Yes, we must be sensitive. We must be humble. But we can be so much like this that we don't share the gospel at all. One of our young staff workers 
um, came from a family, the father was a, a fairly influential Marxist pioneer in Sri Lanka. Uh, he was in the advertising field and he had pioneered the whole concept of socially sensitive advertising. Uh, he came from a Christian family but had rejected Christianity and now he was dying, he was sick. And the, and the young staff worker said, I want you to come and share the gospel with my father. So I went and I did all the bridge building exercises. I was talking about uh, his profession, about uh, uh, you know the, all of that and it was going on and on. And our young staffer was getting a little impatient. He knew that I had built bridges and I'm trying to build on the built bridge already, you know. So he told me, Ajit, uh, you came here to tell something to my father, didn't you, you know. <laughs> and that was enough for me. It was the uh, cue for me to start talking about the gospel. And I explained the gospel very simply. And at the end of the explanation, I asked him, would you like to give your life to Christ? And he said, yes. And I said, would you then say this prayer after me? And he said, yes. And he lived for another seven days. But he was such a happy man. Whenever people came to see him, he would tell them, sing some hymns. He was ready. What if I had continued to build bridges on the bridge that I had already built? We may have lost an opportunity to share the gospel. People need the Lord. And we must be dreaming, asking, what can we do to take the gospel to them? Let's pray. Father, we are about to enter into a sacred communion with you and with each other as we remember the thing that binds us together. May the strength that we get from that communion be an incentive to make the message that lies behind it known to the whole world. Father, many of the people here are studying, confined to this wonderful community of people. But even as they do that, may they never stop dreaming. May they never stop yearning somehow, some way to, know, to be agents of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We commit ourselves to that Father and we ask these things in Jesus' name.